Hi, Mage fans. This is your host, Terry Robinson, and my guest today is RPG writing firehose, Greg Stolze. And when I say that, I do not use that term lightly. We've had satirist Phil Bricado on, who has produced several million words, and that is but a faint shadow, seemingly, of what Greg has produced. World of Darkness fans may know Greg from Demon the Fallen and Hunter the Reckoning and Vampire Revised Edition. And in Chronicles of Darkness, a fair bit of Vampire the Requiem, Mummy the Cursed, as well as other games of Greg's devising, like Better Angels and Over the Edge, Delta Green, Adventure, Hunter, Aberrant, Legend of the Five Rings, Godlike, Wild Talents, Unknown Armies, Feng Shui, and I think about a dozen others. Not to indicate that Greg came up with all of those systems, but has at least seemingly written for them, or at least that's what my good friend the internet has told me. Greg, why are you doing this to yourself? I really don't think the world would be better off if I was an incompetent heart surgeon, which I would be. I'd drop my keys like once or twice a week. You don't want me in there mm. doing plumbing on stuff you need to live. So, uh, yeah, um, part of it is, you know, that that's the flippant answer that this is something I am good at. People tell me and I, I believe them. And I can make some money at it. I'm not not exactly in the penthouse suite, but I know lots of people who are poorer than me, not to put too fine a point on it. So if I can have fun and make money, that seems like the way to go, especially when other jobs I've tried to do, I was at best at at, you know, just when I was absolutely on fire, I was average. This seems to be where I belong. It's like the apex of the utility function where it's like, what is least harmful to society and what lets you flourish as a human being? <laughs> I sure. always hate it when you find out that someone's like really good at shooting people from a clock tower. Like it must be really frustrating for that be to be your magnus opus. So I guess in the grand scheme of things, the fact that I'm reasonably good at souffles is... I have, uh, you know, contemplated. I'm like, okay, that's a fascinating character. The person whose talent is something he despises. I mean, what do you do when you find out, oh, the only thing I'm good at is scamming the elderly. That's my only unusual talent. What would you do with that? Would you just be like, I'm sorry, that knife has to stay in the sheath because it, it can only strike the weak. What? There's no ethical use for that. Yeah, there is no ethical stabbing under capitalism. That's another one of your uh, uh, noted Greg Stolze statements. <laughs> well, you can't, you can't judge. I'm fortunate that what I'm good at also seems to be something other people like to observe from the outside. So that's, that's a synergy right there. And speaking of things you're good at that people observe from the outside that may also contain monster monsters, you have enough work that I feel that I could not competently say, hey, here is the through line. But <laughs> two of the through lines I've found seem to be, one is the world doesn't make sense, but that's not an excuse for you to not do something. That's a very nice way to phrase it, yes. And the other one is sometimes that depraved people doing depraved things is kind of necessary. Depraved is probably the wrong word. When I look at things like Aberrant or Unknown Armies or Better Angels or Mummy the Curse or Vampire or uh, those where you are playing some sort of monster, there is a matter-of-factness to their representation. There is some reflection, but it is very rarely, woe is me in regards to that, which is something I may just be fabricating. Do, do you feel you have a theory of 
the kinds of RPGs that you like to write or alternatively what you generally want readers to take from the worlds you build? I don't really write things to present a message. I remember when I was very young and had written, you know, some horrible piece of science fiction about the last humans in a post-apocalyptic uh, uh, setting and my mom, and this was like when I was like 14, 15, and my mom's like, well, it's very competent, but you know, have you ever tried writing something nicer? And the feeling I had was, well, all I can do is open the faucet. I don't really get to choose what comes out of it. I have to stick with something long enough to write even a short story, it has to be compelling to you. And, you know, yeah, these themes you've picked up on that it is impossible to know if you are making a mistake, but inaction is also often a mistake is, you know, that's something that I've, I've observed throughout my life, just, uh, you know, in, on the personal scale and also on the larger scale, it's like, there are always unintended consequences and sometimes they're very bad. Nobody thought, you know, when Bitcoin was invented, nobody thought it was going to destroy the rainforest. Yet here we are. And as for the the issue of doing the, well, someone once described Delta Green as doing the unspeakable to prevent the unthinkable, which is less, that, that fits with Hunter too, mm -hmm. is that, and, and something that's come up in a lot of the World of Darkness stuff. I found it very easy to write compelling villains because they think they're the heroes and they are, you know, Lucifer in my writing is like, I'm completely justified. I'm doing good work. If it's not for me, everything's going to go to, everything's going to fall apart. And, you know, you got Dracula in uh, Rites of the Dragon where he's just like, look, man, I have problems. And if I'm able to make one problem, another problem solution, then how does that make me the bad guy? <laughs> Fight violence with violence. Uh, can we get like a one sentence overview or alternatively I can provide it for Delta Green and Hunter? So Delta Green is a Cthulhu mythos setting where you work for some aspect of the United States government that is aware that the mythos, that, that cosmic mythos style threats exists and is like, we have to stop these things we don't understand by any means necessary. It reminds me of the move bombing in Philadelphia where the police blew up a tenement because they're like, well, it was our only option to stop this evil. And, you know, so Delta Green, the horror in Delta Green is sometimes that attitude's right. I recently watched Bone Tomahawk, which... I liked how beautifully it was shot and I thought it was well acted, but I'm like, the subtext here is that it is possible to have a culture that deserves to be genocided. And I'm not sure that's a great <laughs> message you want to have in there. So there's that. Hunter the Reckoning is like, in some ways, the working class World of Darkness version of Delta Green. In Delta Green, you at least signed up to be an FBI agent or, uh, you know, signed up for the military in Hunter the Reckoning is much more like that, that bit about how in the Bible, God always picks the most unlikely person to do his will. It's like, oh, hey, who's going to lead these slaves to freedom and, you know, inspire them? Let's take the stuttering guy and have him do it. 
or, hey, who's going to proselytize the word of Jesus to the Gentiles? I know. How about the guy who literally held people's coats while they were killing a Christian? Let's get that guy. And so Hunter the Reckoning is just, you know, one day you're working at the tire yard and the next day you're aware that vampires exist and you have like one trick that got, they haven't seen. You've got one trick, yeah. but you've got friends. <laughs> do you, do, so, well, work friends. Yeah, yeah, work friends formally. But like, it's, it's kind of also interesting because your notion of does a culture deserve to be destroyed, I feel is also not necessarily a recurring theme in your RPG work, but the question of how do we dismantle the world that we're in while we live in it, it seems to have parallels there. Do you think Demon and Hunter were in any way products of their time? Well, I'm, I'm sure they were. It's hard to put a finger on it exactly, but... The idea in Hunter that the world has fundamentally changed under your feet and like it or not, you are now a combatant in a conflict you do not fully understand. You can track the trajectory from 9-11 being everything in everywhere to that pretty easily. It's strange for me now to deal with people who never experienced a pre 9-11 world, which I'm, I'm not going to mythologize it and say that everything was great in the 90s, the 80s and the 70s, because in a lot of ways, they were worse than now. I just cannot imagine being nostalgic for the 70s of my childhood. Uh, you know, the 80s, okay, it's a little easier because I was a teenager in the 80s and, you know, a lot of fun stuff was happening, but still, a lot of terrible stuff was happening. There's a lot of things that were commonplace, accepted, you just didn't think about it then, that are appalling today. I mean, I don't know how old I was before... I saw an interracial couple. And that is a factor of the 70s when that was just, you had to really commit to that. Mm -hmm. Whereas now it's like, oh, well, that's just people dating. I, the closest so. I get to that is at a convention when I see two people from directly opposed fandoms holding hands. Like when, I see, <laughs> like when I see a Jedi and a Starfleet officer and I'm like, that's just wrong. Standards have changed and I've seen it in my lifetime and it's not always for the worse. Yeah. Uh, I, I have to, I tend to be a gloomy person. So I have to remind myself consciously that, you know, in, in the William Gibson sense, um, in the slightly angrier William Gibson sense, like <laughs> the, the sense I get is you believe yourself to have an accurate read on things. You are not projecting things that are worse. I think you. one of the recurring themes is you are merely revealing to people that things may be worse than they actually are. And I feel like that goes back to your statement on the 80s and 90s. Uh, there were trends in the world that indicated that eventually something was going to break, that the U.S.'s two-decade break from the news seemingly, or decade and a half break from the news after the fall of the Soviet Union until 9-11 was... Uh, the Roaring Twenties, it was this blissful moment where all of these forces were building in the background and that kind of shattered with 9-11. And again, with a bunch of these games, there is something terrible out there. And the question is, is your character aware of it? And it fundamentally raises the question, is it better to be blissfully ignorant or would you rather know what's going on and then be in a position where you have to choose to do something about it, where it kind of forces that moral choice on characters? You don't always get to choose. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, you know, sometimes it's just like, oh, wow, turns out everything I believed was a lie. So now I either have to accept that I was wrong then or accept that I'm wrong now. And accepting that I'm wrong now is much easier because I've conceived of the idea that I could have been wrong then. Everyone at some point believes the lies. There are, I'm sure there are things I'm completely confident in that turn will turn out to be false. And that's just the uncertainty that we have to live with uh, inside this prison of linear time with our <laughs> limited perceptions and cognitive constraints. So the, the two lines that I, I most think of, uh, Hunter and Demon, are very uh, kind of apocalyptic in that sense, in kind of a grand sense. The Gehenna notion in vampire to me is almost quaint because it's a vampire thing that happens to vampires where the end times for hunters and the end times for demon represents a sea change for humanity. Uh, what is it like writing for a game line where it is from word one, you know, the end is coming. This is not some theoretical far off thing. I'm not going to lie to you, Terry. It was super fun. <laughs> um, when, what was the, the time of judgment, um, book when mm -hmm. they they assigned me the fiction for that i'm like so let me just let me <laughs> make sure that i get that i am allowed to take every toy out of the toy box and break them and they're like go nuts and i'm like i will thank you so it is a you know it's a great sense of release to have that freedom to destroy everything i mean i'm not saying it's a pot it, within a fictional context, yeah, that's great. One of the things I remember John Tynes talking about post-apocalyptic literature and settings and how what the apocalypse has come to symbolize is the loss of restraint and responsibility, right? It's like, oh, well, you know, the world has fallen. I'm just going to do my thing. I'm beyond good and evil now. I used to be an insurance adjuster, but now I'm Lord Humongous Warrior of the Wasteland. And this is not in any way how people really react when things fall apart. People do not become hyper-individualized dicks. People tend to become more compassionate, come together, help strangers. But that doesn't get depicted. And I may not have been as aware of that during the time of judgment stuff when I was just like, yeah, let's do this. Let's have the power fantasy of immense destructive capacity where I can just lash out and it, the, the bill will never come due. The view of the apocalypse I find the most morbidly compelling is it is the ultimate case of avoiding FOMO. If society does not exist after you, there is no great future that you will miss. I, I think of the people in my life who, who are no longer with us, and the anger in me comes up in the form of, oh man, this person was really interested in stem cell technology, and it would have been great for them to be alive today to know where it's gone, or to see how CRISPR has changed the landscape, or to see how cheap and ubiquitous computers are, or to see their grandkids grow up. Uh, but in yeah. the case of an apocalypse, meh, <laughs> there's, like, there's a, no, it's, the, the party's over once you leave. You don't have to worry about people, about you leaving and then people having a great time in your absence. Mm -hmm. uh, so bringing that into games, uh, these are, in a lot of cases, urban fantasy or urban fantasy-like settings. Is there anything specific about the urban fantasy uh, contrivance that you particularly like? 
I don't have to do a bunch of historical research. Take that, that Ken Height. Um, that's who I was thinking of. Yeah, yes. we were... I write what you know is not an inflexible iron law of creation, but it can be very useful and uh, you know very comfortable to write about a situation similar to your own, or to take a conflict of a type that you've experienced and expand it a thousand times. Whereas, you know, before it was, oh, I don't like my neighbor's political views. And, uh, you know, his car alarm goes off and he doesn't do anything about it. And you can turn this into some overblown, epic, cosmic battle and, you know, feel a little better about it or, or find a fictional place to act out your unacceptable urges. One of the things about gaming that I think, you know, I, one of the big fun parts of it is, okay, yeah, I'm never actually gonna hit a troll with a broadsword, but imagining it is extremely satisfying. Whereas if I actually did have to hit something like a, a broadsword, you know, hit some huge awful monster with a broadsword, I'd probably be in therapy over it yeah. for the next year. But that's not the fantasy. Step one, so. swing broadsword. Step two, assume fetal position. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Try not to cry. Cry yes. a lot. Yep. One of the interesting things, though, between Delta Green and the World of Darkness, in World of Darkness, in most cases, it is presumed that humans are the monsters, ultimately, at the end of the day. And just the, the choices that humanity makes en masse largely determines the ebb and flow of history. Um, yes. Wor World War II was not started by Lucifer. Um, right. or by any of the any of the antediluvians. But in Delta Green, that assumption is not made. The assumption could be made that the uh, the Battle of the Somme was just a cover to move the worshippers of Dagon out of some underground base. Do you do you have any feelings on that um, on that division between uh, the role of secret history? I don't feel that that's the most fair okay. to, to Delta Green. Delta Green also tends to regard, oh yeah, you know, stuff that happened to humans was mostly human stuff. Okay. And it's not because there aren't monsters in our midst. In the world of darkness, it's like the monsters can't change things. And in Delta Green, it's like the monsters don't care. It's like, it, it's the Dr. Manhattan line about which is your favorite, red ants or black ants? Why would the Miko tamper in broad scale with our history? Why would they care about us? It's like, oh, I'm really fascinated by the politics of the skin mites living in my eyebrows, and I'm really going to favor this one faction of skin mites. I think that's a micro RPG I saw someone put out on Patreon, so <laughs> uh, sorry. <laughs> so in both cases, I mean, the, the, the monstrousness in the world of darkness is monstrous because it is very personal and intimate. And I think at its best, the best experiences I've had with these games has been the intersection of, okay, here's how your interaction with monsters is screwing up the life you wanted to have. And vampire in particular, I'm like, you know, we did a lot of focus on, okay, who are you going to feed from? You have to do harm to people to persist. You want to talk about no ethical consumption under capitalism. <laughs> there's your metaphor. That was something I really wanted to get into in the novels is that you know, feeding is always 
a pain. And you look at Persephone who, you know, at first is like, oh, I'm only going to feed on people who are assholes. I'm only going to, you know, I'm going to cruise these disgusting guys, drain them, and then I won't feel bad about it until she winds up killing one and has to, you know, because she just gets it because regarding him as an asshole makes it really easy to not care for just that moment it takes to go too far. And then she's like, what have I become? I'm a monster guy, and I have to, and I have a body to hide, but mostly I'm a monster. So then she's like, okay, I'm only going to feed from people who remind me of my beloved brother that I can't see anymore because, you know, it'll be less pleasant to do that and I'll be less likely to suck them dry and husk them out. So she has to do this complete 180 and rearrange everything in order to be less monstrous, which is, I think, something that all of us can sympathize with in this age where so much information is available that we are instantly made aware of every negative consequence of every decision we make. And it's kind of interesting to pull that into uh, Mage, which is a line that you did not write for, but very much reminds me of Unknown Armies. It sounds like one of the lessons we can take from that is magic always comes from, almost always comes from a place of absolute dedication that borders into obsession. So to pull that into a game where you're a human with access to magic, it seems like one of the questions that we should be asking ourselves is what, if, what is the cost of that obsession focus? Right. I remember like first edition Mage coming out and me looking at it. And I felt like Mage was doing something very different from what I wanted to do with the idea of wizards in the modern world in that initially you were just born special, right? It's mm -hmm. like, oh, you've got an avatar. You've got, you, you've got something in you that 99% of the people don't have. And I'm like, that's very elitist. <laughs> and I wanted the idea that, oh no, anybody could do this if they were willing to pay the price. And I'm like, how can I make a price so high and the reward so relatively paltry that it makes sense that almost nobody does this? And Unknown Armies has a couple answers. One is, you know, the authentic thaumaturgy path in, in Unknown Armies is that, oh yeah, there are rituals that work. And if you are a dedicated scholar of the paranormal and you keep digging and you keep digging and you keep digging, eventually you will find one that works as advertised. But most of them are not as reliable as even a Bluetooth headset. And most of them don't do anything that's even as useful as a Bluetooth headset. That, you know, the reason technology is so much more popular is it works and you can figure out why and these these weird old rituals okay yeah sometimes you will find one that can do something literally impossible but it's not ever super reliable so that's one path the other path to occult power in unknown armies is you just decide to go head to head against reality and you decide Everyone else is wrong about what this extremely important thing means. And I'm right. And you fight the consensus so hard that reality itself deforms in your presence. So, you know, an, an example from the third edition is, no, the most important thing about people is clothing. Clothing is everything the human race is about. 
And if you dig deep enough into that rabbit hole, you will be able to make your opinions true, which is the most important part of being a doctor is the white coat and the stethoscope, rather than what everyone else knows is true, which no, the important part about being a doctor is knowing medicine. That's the adepts in, in unknown armies are, uh, someone I think coined the phrase, you have to spend all your time wrapped up in the sweaty sleeping bag of your obsessions. <laughs> and so they're very, very good at the one thing they do at the price of not doing anything else. In a game like that, where the venture to the, the outlay to what you get out the other end is seemingly so paltry, how do you justify that kind of play to a player. Uh, in, in Mage of the Ascension, we have the advantage of it being largely a power fantasy, that a character out the door, like you just you just rolled up your character, you could possibly teleport, you can maybe cast a fireball. But here I look at the minor rituals and one is if you're able to track down a like olive drab rotary phone and, and dick with it for a while, you may get a random call that kind of gives you a little bit of information about whatever quest you're doing. But compared to so much of Unknown Army's magic, that's really safe. It's low risk. It may not work, but on the other hand, you don't have to completely divorce yourself from your family or your personality to do it. The rituals, if you get a good one, or if you, and sometimes you'll just find, you know, this is exactly the 3 hex wrench I need for this situation. I've found a thing where if I bury pine cones at a certain location then the ghosts can't get in my house and i don't want the ghosts in my house so sometimes you can you can get that kind of kind of win whereas for the adepts it's like an addiction it's like in the unknown armies game i'm playing right now we have one adept in the party who is focused on masks and personality and what she really likes to do is become other people and you know, she is living out the leftover life of a murder victim that nobody knows is, well, some people know she's dead, but nobody who matters knows she's dead because she shows up. And the price she's paid for this is not having a very firm personality of her own and a loss of agency, which is really in Unknown Armies, it's usually an exchange of agency. It's I am going to be able to do something impossible. So it's, you know, it's perfectly possible to come up with an unknown armies character who can in certain circumstances teleport, right? But in order to pay for that, they're gonna have to do something so that, oh, the fact that this guy can vanish from point A and get to point C without going through point B makes sense. And usually that's a lot of contorting. But, you know, people love to play adepts in Unknown Armies. And again, part of it is that in my daily life, I need to be you know, constrained and listen to other people and adapt to the world as I find it. And Unknown Armies and Mage give you the chance to say, no world, you sit down, shut up and listen, and I'm going to tell you how things are. So it seems like both games share to some extent a fantasy of intransigence. 
Um, <laughs> the, the ability to say no. Um, just yeah. like the, in that almost in the adult version of the childish thing of like, no, I'm not putting my pajamas on. Um, well, now I am definitely not doing it. Yeah, exactly. That, that um, meme with the, the arm crossed penguin. Yeah. <laughs> One of the lessons we can also take from Mage if we want to start doing some homebrewing is one of the things that has been brought up before is in Mage, as you advance, you shed the trappings of your paradigm. You become more Catholic, lowercase c, more plenary, more ecumenical or open-minded or egalitarian in your magic. But here, this seems to be the opposite, where the more you go, the more you need to double down. And there has been discussion in Mage, what if we introduce that? What if to advance in the sphere, you really needed to double down on your paradigm and you went from, I can use any form of salt to do this particular ritual to I need to provide, uh, to prevent the angels from getting in, I need to make someone cry once every three months um, <laughs> and collect that to distill it down into a poultice. And that also has the side effect of really bending the power curve and almost making it logarithmic, where each little bit of advance beyond what you had before seems to take a bit more. So uh, just an option to to steal back at our mage tables. Well, at one point, I had I never even pitched this, but I had an idea for, you know, during during the demon days, I'm like, okay, so what would a game about angels be like in the world of darkness? And, you know, my first thought was, well, you'd need to have a reason for a bunch of angels suddenly showing up on earth. And I'm like, but that's obvious, which is that it's a second fall. That just like with the first one, a bunch of servants of the Lord got mad and said, you're not doing it right. I'm taking over. Uh, you know, this would be a bunch of angels who were like, God's checked out. God's forgotten. We have to do something because no one else is going to. And so the way I wanted to set up the power curve for that, which you see a little bit in better angels, is that you would start out with this gigantic slew of angelic powers, but you would be matched with an equally incredibly restrictive code of behavior. Hmm. And so it's like, you it's not just that you can't tell lies, it's that you cannot intentionally deceive someone. You cannot allow someone to remain in ignorance. You must always accept surrender when it's offered, even if you know it's insincere. Hmm. You, you, know, you must never kill. You know, it's a hard line. And then as soon as you transgress these lines, as soon as you, as an angel, commit a sin and become more like a human, well, your power level drops, but you can then freely break that commandment. So once you kill one time, you won't be punished for doing it ever again. And once you lie one time, now you can just lie, lie, lie like you're on a dating app. Yeah. <laughs> And that eventually you could become almost human where you have no supernatural powers or very few supernatural powers, very weak stuff, but you have absolute moral freedom to make your own decisions and are existing outside of this strict confining ethical framework. Would that be strictly one way? Would that be part of the contrivance of the game once oh, you yeah. have? Okay. Once you fall, you're fallen. There's no going back. You you can't re you can't become a virgin again. If you were approached to do a 20th anniversary edition of Hunter or Demon, one would you be interested? Uh, two, what would that look like? Boy, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I did have a lot of fun with those lines, and I do like a lot of what I do right now. Sort of, I have 
a great deal of creative freedom, but uh, you know, I do kind of miss partnerships. Um, I'm I'm in a uh, a com- we founded a company called Crankshaft Constellation to do my science fiction game Termination Shock, and part of the reason I wanted to do that, I could have done it all on my own, but then I'd have to do all the work on my own. But uh, in, a, in a less practical concern, I'm like, I want to work with other people and I want to have this creative interplay of ideas. And so there's, there's a real tension in me between the mood where I'm like the guy with his arms up like guardrail saying, no, no, this is mine. You can't have any. Mm-hmm. And the approach where it's like, let's just spitball ideas back and forth and see where it goes. So yeah, I, I have many moods. And so if I was going to work on a uh, resurgent demon or hunter, it might be more fun for me to exercise my highly developed followership skills and just be like, okay, well, what's your idea? What's your vision? And how can I make that idea clearer and more intricate? And you know, what complications can I add that will make it fascinating? When I was first doing Hunter, uh, one of the things I wanted to do is have all these characters with very, very different opinions on what was happening to them and why and what the right thing to do was. And that, that was in the brief. That came down from the developers. And I think what I, one thing I really tried to do well, and I hope I did do well, was take them all seriously. And, you know, one of the the characters is this very unpleasant, rigid, uptight Christian. And I'm like, and I want to present it that even though I, the writer, disagree with that approach, I don't want the world and the situations to make this guy a buffoon. Like, I want to show that he's that way for a reason and from his perspective, he's right. And that his hippy-dippy colleagues who are all fuzzy moral relativists, from their perspective, they're right. And I want to show how his rigidity makes him makes trouble for him. And I want to show how their flexibility makes trouble for them. Do you feel as if your work at all is a, uh, one of the things that seems to come through in your work is you take earnestness seriously. I don't get the sense that your books come from a place of look at these idiots. And that is interesting because in some settings, it is very much postmodern worlds in the sense that there is a skepticism towards meta narrative. The obvious exception to that is probably Demon, which starts with the premise more or less of, yep, Christian God, that was a thing. But when I look at, for instance, Unknown Armies, which feels very much like a postmodern game of skepticism towards meta narrative, although whenever you do that because it's an RPG, you need a meta meta narrative anyway. Where do you think that comes from? And do you think there is almost a defiance to having games where injured people believing things strongly and pursuing them can help create the world that they want? Sincerity, I'm not always a fully sincere person and I can be very sarcastic and you know and that's fun Mm -hmm. but it's sarcasm and that sort of aloofness it's a sometimes food i mean sometimes you have to detach and be aloof and laugh just because the alternative is the kind is heartbreak Mm -hmm. 
and like the non-productive kind of heartbreak. Mm -hmm. But there is also the heartbreak that works. The heartbreak where you're like, oh my God, somebody has to do something about the, oh shit, I'm somebody. <laughs> Calluses are terribly useful when you have yeah. a repetitive task that you need to do. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, sometimes you need to be tender and sensitive. And so I, I try not to shy away from people caring very deeply about things because boy, indifference is like, it's the one commodity in the world that nobody is lacking. We're not gonna run out of it anytime soon. It's not, we're not at peak indifference. There's always more indifference to be had. And so I can be a painfully sincere person in certain moods when I like feel safe enough. And to draw that into our games, if we can, one of the sure. some of the mechanics in Unknown Armies that I, I find particularly compelling are, one, you kind of have the, the five damage tracks that you keep track of, your, your numbness or your sensitivity to violence and so on, as well as the, uh, the fact that characters gain more or less superpowers from their passions and obsessions. Those are things that, to me, seem like they would be super difficult to come up with mechanics for. Like the humanity stat and vampires, kind of straightforward. You, you get that there's a hierarchy of sins, but I think Unanormies does something that is at least one step beyond that. Can you talk about what the passions and obsessions are and maybe what that multi-dimensional trauma tracker is like? Because I think that is something we could really easily pull into almost any game. The idea is simply that if you care about something a lot, you will focus on it and that focus permits you to be better at things. I mean, the guy who loves basketball and is always look, thinking about basketball and will play in any pickup game is probably going to be better at shooting three-pointers than the guy who's like, yeah, basketball's okay in season. Why shouldn't you have some kind of mechanical bonus when you, you, know, you define this thing that your character's about? My character is obsessed with X, and to be a character in Unknown Armies, you have to be obsessed with something because otherwise, you know, why would you just not check out of all this crazy? But if you're obsessed with something, it, it pulls you in. So it's good for the GM because you, you have this signposted thing. Oh, if someone is obsessed with, obsessed with cars, you know you can build something that they will, you know, you, you can bait your hook with a car and they'll bite on it. And that makes GMing much easier. So you reward the character for caring a lot. It rewards the player for having a more fully realized idea of personality. Unknown Armies focuses a lot on character. That's intentional. And I'm not saying every game has to be that way. I've played lots of fun games where it's like, oh yeah, my guy is the guy who's good at the broadsword and we're gonna go save the world by this dungeon crawl. And that's an entirely legitimate fun way to play. But it's not the only legitimate fun way to play. Doing something that is an intimate character study of these tightly wound obsessed weirdos is also legitimate and fascinating to me. The idea of tracking different types of damage is that nobody gets out of this world without some dings and scrapes. It's a it's a full contact experience that we're we're living here. And the sorts of traumas you endure determine how you view the world and how you react to the world. One of the things that I tied into these, these damage tracks 
So, you know, the, the most obvious and easy to grasp one is violence. If you have lived a blessedly peaceful life, the first time someone takes a swing at you, your reaction is probably not going to be to immediately start fighting expertly. It's going to be shock. It's going to be like, wait, that didn't just happen, did it? People don't actually do that. But once you've been punched in the face a few times, it becomes much more conceivable that you will be punched in the face again and you adapt and you're, you adapt accordingly. Similarly, some of the other tracks are, you know, helplessness. So if you're used to being prosperous, privileged person who can, you know, the kind of person that social rules expect, then most of the time you can get your way in important things that matter to you. And being in a position where you're like, I just don't have any agency. I just, I cannot get out of this locked room is much harder to take than it is for someone who has experienced a lot of helplessness in their life. Or isolation is another one of the tracks or self, which is the, the complicated and fascinating one where it's like, oh, I never thought I would be the kind of person who would steal money from the till, but I really need money to get my meth fix and the till is unlocked. I guess I'm that person now. The violation of your mirror image self is, you know, it's a trauma. When you find, when you think you're a good person and you have a very strict definition of what a good person is, and then you wind up being in a situation where you have to transgress your idea of what the good person you are is because the alternative is even worse. Mm -hmm. So that is how personality works in unknown armies. And in the current edition, in the third edition, you have abilities, just mundane abilities tied into these. The obvious one is like violence. So if you have a whole string of check marks in violence, because you are like a mafia hitman and you can, you, know, you can pitilessly shoot a guy in the head out at Miller's Crossing and then go get a nice cannoli afterwards. And that's just Thursday for you. You are extremely hardened to violence. What that means is that even if you have no other reason to be good at fighting, you'll be pretty good at fighting just because you don't care about hurting other people. But at the same time, you have an innate ability to connect to other people. The skill is called connect and it measures how easily you can make people think you're a good person sincerely and understand their problems and convince them to trust you. And the more hardened notches you have in violence, the lower your native connectability is because people just look at you and they're like, he's got serial killer eyes. I'm not getting in a car with him. I don't want to be stuck in an elevator with him. Are you telling me that so, Anton Chigurh has difficulty dating? There but, it is. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, there are ways around that. You can take identities where it's like, okay, this substitutes in for connect, but you need to have a reason why, despite being this burned out mafia hitman, you can still sit down with a 10 year old kid who's your, your buddy's daughter and 
you know, not scare them away and listen to them and interact with them without it being a, a recurring nightmare for them. The idea of a stat that it, it is not quite a health bar so much as it is kind of dividing some resource between two poles, let's say the, the willingness to do violence in the empathic pole. And that is that is something that moves back and forth. And that is something I wish more games were able to uh, to pull into themselves. Have um, you read A Dirty World? No. Do you want to give the the quick overview of what that is? It's my very short film noir emulator okay. and the thing i've done there is everything is based on these contrary tracks and that you can either be very brave or very cruel but you can't be both very brave and very cruel and you can either be very pure or very corrupt but you can't be both pure and corrupt and there are situations where you want to be pure and situations where you want to be corrupt. If you're trying to get someone to give you the keys to their boat and you're luring them with your erotic seductions, then you want to be corrupt so that you can play off their lusts. But if you're trying to get someone to give you money for the food pantry, then purity is the key for that. And you take your damage directly to these, so they're sliding around. You can change something every scene if the right kind of bad thing happened to you. So that's that replaces experience, is that you, if someone beats the crap out of you and you can't do anything about it, you will get more wrath at the end of that scene. Or if someone lies to you and you're, you believe it like a sucker, you can become more corrupt. And the ones that make you a better person are generally harder to achieve. So in order to become more pure, you have to help somebody at cost without getting anything out of it. And this is something that we can steal in Mage, at least on, uh, I think, the magic side. Like the the underlying system for World of Darkness, that, that would be a little bit hard to rejigger. But at least with the magic system in Mage, we do have the idea of the quiet tracks, where I, I think it would make sense that your character's magic can or worldview can blend towards the static denying reality and not seeing things that they don't want to have there. The entropic having just this fundamentally morbid view of things and the dynamic or that, that kind of tends towards madness at one, one extent. So I think people interested in playing with that, at least on the magical side, could look to a dirty world, $10 on drive through RPG, 70 pages, links will be in the show notes, um, <laughs> and say, hey, this magic is going to be easier to do if your view of the world is a little bit death-tinged. But this other thing that you want to do on the other end of the spectrum, making those flowers bloom, are, bloom are going to be somewhat difficult. This crazy effect you want to do where you turn this door into silly putty and then tear through it is going to be easier if you have a tinge of madness to you and you already view reality as buckling at the seams. It's going to be a little bit harder if you're kind of in a state of quiet, keyed towards denial where you have this kind of static view of the cosmos and it is just this mechanistic device that is rolling forward. So it, it seems like that that idea of having to having to balance forces and your character can be optimized for a particular thing, but they cannot be the best at everything. They cannot be right. 18s down the line uh, in D&D speak, I, I think is a an interesting mechanical space to be in. And speaking of kind of that that post-modernity, one of the cases seemingly in Unknown Armies where I, at least as a casual reader who very frantically tried to ingest as much as I could in the 48 hours before this interview, uh, one, it is fascinating to talk to Unknown Armies fans. It's like talking to Frank Zappa fans. <laughs> it, 
<laughs> it okay, is just, I'll take it. this is the best thing in the world. You have no idea. And you're like, why? And the answer is just listen to it, man. Can you hear what this guy's doing? And I'm like, you're, it cannot be explained. Only experienced. Exactly. <laughs> you gotta, I need a little bit more than that. One of the things that when we talk mage that unknown armies, players raise their paw and say is invisible clergy and the archetypes. Can you, can you tell me what that is? The cosmology of unknown armies is the, the, the source of the horror is that the entire universe is a representative democracy of humankind. There are no angels. There is nothing more important than us. We are fundamentally different from all other matter and only human identity fuels everything. So that's step one. Step two, the universe is periodically destroyed and recreated. And when it is recreated, a counter resets. The invisible clergy is empty. But at some point, some person will enact a role enough and enough people will identify a pattern. And, you know, the early patterns are like the mother or, you know, the hunter or the lawgiver or the outcast. And someone will embody that well enough. Enough people will recognize that that idea is important and that this person embodies it, that they will escape from physical reality and become not just, you know, that one guy we kicked out because he was an outcast. He will become the outcast. We'll enter the invisible clergy as the outcast. And every other person who gets exiled can reflect on this outcast nature and thereby become a more perfect outcast. Or if you're a hunter and you understand what the archetypal hunter is all about, you can sort of draw in the reflected glory of the hunter and make yourself a better hunter. You can go along to get along. And as more of these people, these archetypes ascend, they influence the world below them, but only in very broad strokes. They can't quite see individuals very well. If someone in the ind invisible clergy gets mad at you or you upset them, it's uncertain how much they retain the uh, human ability to care about things or whether they're, you know, just these really non-conscious chthonic archetypes, but it's established that it's, you're able to piss them off. They're not going to just give you an aneurysm. It's going to be like, a tornado hits the town where you are and wipes it out. They mm -hmm. can only make these big sweeping gestures. So that all happens. And then once 333 archetypes have been defined and reality has been put into these 333 categories, the clergy is full. It fuses into a single demiurge, destroys the universe and rebuilds it. So there is reincarnation happens, but only on a cosmic scale. So if you become one of these archetypes, you will also be one of the architects of the next reality. And if you can influence what archetypes are being, are ascending, you can influence what the next reality is going to be like. If the archetypes that are going up are all, you know, the liar, the oppressor, the rapist, the next reality is going to be a dark, awful place. If it's the compassionate minister is going up, the selfless martyr, the diplomat, 
if the invisible clergy is packed with people like that, next cosmos could be pretty sweet. And the other thing is it's possible to pull people out of it. So there is an archetype of the king, but you know, there aren't really that many reigning kings anymore. So that archetype may be vulnerable. It may be possible to pull out the king and replace them with an archetype you like better for governance. Maybe that's the autocrat. Maybe that's the democratic representative. Depending on who you put in, things change. And so that is the sort of grand big cosmology of unknown armies. And a lot of games focus around, okay, we are trying to pull out the concept, oh, you know, the fiction in second edition was about an attempt to destroy the messenger, the person who brings the truth and replace it with the Heisenberg messenger who brings you a truth based on perspective. And arguably, you know, looking at the the world recently, you could, it's not hard to spin out, oh yeah, they totally did it. They totally destroyed the concept of truth. And that's why CNN is the way it is. The Unknown Armies, what is that a call to, if anything? It refers to a line from uh, William Butler Yeats' poem, The Valley of the Black Pig. We had trouble coming up with a title. Okay. And so... <laughs> It, that was the one we settled on. <laughs> Titles are hard. Uh, the first response on RPG Net when you ask, where did it get the title, is it's part of a scheme to bring down the RPG industry by making it impossible to know if someone's talking about the game of postmodern horror and furious action and D&D's Unearthed Arcana, the source book of power gaming, munchkinism, and broken rules tweaks. <laughs> so I... <laughs> Thanks, RPG Net. Um, Don't forget United Artists. That's the other big uh, UA. But that seems something that is super magey that we can grab into our games. We already have the idea of Archmasters and we already have the idea of Oracles. But to say that somebody wants to be the ultimate Hogan or the ultimate priest or the the ultimate hermetic, it seems like you could very much have a game of mage play out in characters warring with those archetypes. And once again, as we mentioned earlier, it is a trade-off between the ability to act freely and gaining power by really... Uh, leaning into an archetype and nothing brings the old world of darkness together like uncle Aggie. Um, so any fundamental story involving apotheosis seems like a, a cool one. It also seems to at least remind me very much of the mage, the awakening idea that there is a supernal realm in which all concepts truly exist, just kind of this platonic realm. But in this case, this is not a truly separate platonic realm. This is a platonic realm that is informed by human belief and experience. And those, those supernal symbols could be pulled out and replaced by something else. So we've talked a bunch about the World of Darkness, your involvement there, and Unknown Armies. But notionally, we are here to discuss an upcoming project of yours. What is it? I've got a couple coming up. And the one that I'm, I'm launching soon is I wrote a series of stories set in the Unknown Armies setting about a character named Mick Peltier, who used to be a rock and roll drummer and is... In some ways, he's this very wish fulfillment character in that who doesn't want to be a charming, charismatic guy who doesn't have to work because a song he played drums on is used in a truck commercial. <laughs> so he is just living off residuals and, you know, is not is not super wealthy, but 
is in the position where he does not have to have a drudgeful workaday job. And so what he has decided he's going to transition into is a podcast about the paranormal. And this being the Unknown Army setting, once he scratches the surface, it scratches back. So I've got three stories I've written about this. In the first one, he's kind of a minor character. He is presented as a psychic, which is, you know, also part of his shtick, but it's not incredibly reliable. And he and his therapist are trying to deal with a haunting. And he has this vision. He's like, I know the guy who can help us. And that guy is the narrator of the story. And he is this old retired guy who doesn't believe in ghosts or God or goodness, really. He's this sort of, of angry, not even angry, just sort of this burned out case. And, you know, there's a part where he talks about, yeah, now that I'm retired, mostly I'm just waiting for God to send me a heart attack. And they get involved in this violent haunting. And you have the, you have a fun interplay between this goofy, charismatic ex-rock star for whom everything has gone really well in life up to now. And this, well, I don't want to tell too much about the narrator who never gets named, but he has a history of violence. Let's put it that way. And about half the story is just him talking about, well, Here's how this played out. So that's the first story. The second one is much more mixed centered in that he has arranged an interview, an interview for his podcast. So now we're getting meta. And it is with someone who claims that he was a psychic assassin for the CIA. And this guy is a real fan of mixed music career. And so they are sort of swapping these stories they're exchanging okay well you tell me what that lead singer is really like and i'll tell you about how the cia shoved electrodes in my brain so that i could bend spoons and so that's that's a fun one can he bend the spoons though yes i'm very pleased with the spoon bending scene because you know this is this is his pitch it's like i'll bend a spoon for you and mick is like oh i want you to bend this spoon and he pulls one out of his jacket and they're in a Denny's. So it's, you know, a place the guy probably couldn't get to beforehand. And he's like, okay, well, let me just a- align the, the prana of my chakras. He's like, okay. And as soon as he has it out of his hand, it like pops up in the air and is folded completely in half without the guy even touching it once. And he's like, holy shit, you bent that spoon! <laughs> he's like, I told you I could bend spoons. <laughs> seems to have a certain William Gibson pattern recognition vibe to it in terms of <laughs> like former rock star or former notable person with the- that was an inspiration I I loved the fact that the main character in pattern is a pattern recognition that has the character who is a spy who used to be a rock star and all you feel is sorry for how pathetic her life is I think it might be zero history it was part of an arc I can't it's write one of those it's one of that that trilogy the third story in the mix cycle is again he's just sort of a framing device and this one is about a woman whose life completely falls apart in like one afternoon. And because it's a non-linear narrative, it's like, okay, we see her before and everything's great. And we see her after and everything's bad. And it's sort of 
closes in and you're like, wait, how did she get from A to B? And in B, we see her progression where someone is like, okay, look, I know you've had this horrible trauma that reshaped your life, but you can take control of that and get magic powers. And she's like, um, <laughs> well, that's not how I thought that sentence would end. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Maybe. And she's not enticed by, you know, the, the suggestion of magic powers so much as you will be around people who have had the same thing happen mm -hmm. to them, who have undergone the same trauma. We are the only ones who can understand you. And so it's sort of, and then you see what happened. So it's fun. What is it like writing fiction in a RPG universe? How does that differ at all to you between writing fiction otherwise? I don't find it that different. Mostly I am writing in settings I myself created. Okay. Again, as uh, the stuff I did for the World of Darkness, it was nice to be able to stand on the shoulders of giants. And it was nice to have a very clear set of parameters of what was expected. Hey, we would like it if you did X, Y, and Z. And as long as you do X, Y, and Z, you have a lot of freedom with everything else in it. But it's nice to be handed a framework and to be externally validated you want to hear a great story about writing the demon novels. This, this is, is the Seven Deadlies, the Wreckage. I don't. Those are the two that I know of. I don't know if there are more. Uh, there, Ashes so. and Angel Wings okay. is the first one. Seven Deadlies is the second, and the Wreckage of Paradise is the third. Titles are hard, but I think I got. I, I like the Wreckage of Paradise. I think that's a good title. But I had this huge, overarching, intricate plot line, you know, this outline for, for the whole three book span. And the first book, I was able to stick to it pretty well. And then in the second book, a third or halfway through, it just falls apart. And I am, I am off the outline and I'm in the weeds and I don't know what's happening. And I call up the editor uh, in an absolute lather and I'm panicked and I'm like, what do I, what do I do? The characters have changed. They no longer fit. They're, they're doing their own thing. And he's like, okay, breathe. It's like, are you still writing? And I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, I keep thinking of all these things they're going to do. He's like, okay, so you're not, you're not spinning your wheels. You're producing these, you're, you're getting stuff out. I'm like, yeah. He's like, all right why don't you just see where this goes? I trust you to produce this. Why don't you trust yourself to produce this? And I'm like, wow, this is a tremendous investment of faith in me. This is this, this beautiful, precious thing. I better, yeah, I better come through. And I did. And I'm like, this is what an editor does at their best is they check your crazy and enable you to get out of your own way and do the work. And, you know, later on, when I was much more, a much more experienced writer, I'm like, oh yeah, you know, you can write off an outline or you can just write experimentally to see, you know, you throw it at random and see where it lands. And, you know, both work, they're both legitimate. And oftentimes by the time something's gone through a couple more drafts, you can't tell how it was produced but at the time all i knew was you know i'm like i had an outline and now i don't have an outline i'm a, i'm alone in the dark and i don't know where i am well 
I feel like there's an immediate metaphor for that and the experience of being a game master or storyteller. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> at some point, your players will just come up with, yeah, we've decided to not even go to the dungeon. We're going to open a soap shop in town. We're really into this. Or when you, you come up with a character spontaneously and they're like, this whole game just became about this one person. And you're like, I don't know who that is. They're not involved in any of my plans. <laughs> a lot of the design that I have been doing lately has been geared towards how do we keep that from happening? How, or not even how do we keep that from happening? How do we keep that from being a disaster? Something I've come to believe is that those weird jack moves and unexpected moments are not the problem, but the solution. That that's gaming being gaming and you have to be ready for it. That wildness is something that you can only get in this form. You will not get unexpected wildness in a novel. You might experience it as a reader, but it, it's not there in the moment of production. It's the moment of production is extremely careful. And you can't get that in a computer game that can only do what it's programmed to do. You cannot change the fundamental nature and direction of a computer game very easily. I mean, MMOs permit that through player interaction, but still. I think there are computer games with emergent play where there are certain phenomena that can happen in games the programmers never knew could occur. Like mm -hmm. when you have a Horizon Zero Dawn was notable for having this case where the programmers didn't even know that the certain interface of a geographic region and a weather system and these their their herd mechanics that they had created this massive dinosaur war in a desert. And people were like, wow, this is amazing. Great that they added that. They're like, we didn't even know the game could do that. But yeah, I, we get the point. That's just me being yeah. uh, pedantic. Um, they They did have to code for mm -hmm. dinosaurs, weather, and terrain. And yeah, it's great when you can have that emergent thing, but I think tabletop role-playing games deal with that spontaneity and dwell there in a way that few other forms do. Mm -hmm. I, the only other one I'm thinking of is like improv comedy. I'm like, who wants to be involved with yeah, that? Yeah, that's on my list of episodes. I want to do things we could learn from improv, and I may yeah. turn it into a things we shouldn't learn from improv episode, but we'll yes, see how that goes. And... Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I make fun of improv because it's so easy, but it does have a lot in common, and it's not like making fun of, it's not like making fun of tabletop role play games as some insurmountable challenge either. Yeah. It's it, no one is punching down in that competition. <laughs> um, so you're doing this on as being crowdfunded. Why not go through a traditional publisher or something like that? It's hard. It takes a long time and you have to deal with people and it's work. And the other reason is I do like this situation I've set up where if I get enough people to crowdfund a story at something at a rate I think is fair, I put it up on my website under a Creative Commons license for everybody. And, you know, and I've been that uh, college student without a lot of, of uh, disposable income. And so I feel for people who are like, yeah, I would, I'd love to spend 20 bucks on a hardback of, you know, of whatever but I don't have it. That's, that's laundry money. And they, they look at me funny when I smell bad. So I can't have this book. 
And I don't want to only have to be beholden to the fans who can afford luxury products. And that is, and I got nothing against people who can afford luxury products because I am one mm -hmm. now. I, you know, I'm like, oh yeah, I'll, I can, I, if I want to, I can drop 50 bucks on this awesome graphic novel with a, you know, glow in the dark cover from Iron Circus Comics. And that's fine. I can, I can, but I recognize that not everybody can. And I don't want to box out people who can't afford to back something or can't afford to back it at a, a high end. So this is the compromise I've found is getting paid to give stuff away for free. And the other advantage to it is I'm a much better writer than I am a marketer. I think that's inarguable. And I don't like marketing. I don't enjoy marketing. So what this lets me do is have something that feels more sincere than marketing. I'm like, look, rather than tell you how great the work is, why don't I just give you the work? Rather than telling you how great these fries taste, why don't I just give you some fries? Go to my fiction library, read the stuff that's already free. If you like that, you'll probably like this other stuff and can make it also free for everyone. So I'm trying to have a setup where everyone benefits. They're all under Creative Commons, just because this may be short-sighted, but I feel like I have better things to do with my life than track down every pirate site that's, you know, sharing my stuff. <sighs> I'm not a cybersecurity expert, and yet I live in a world that demands I be one. You mentioned you had a, a couple of projects that you had ongoing. So this is the Unknown Armies one. The Unknown Armies fiction one is, by the time this is out, mm -hmm. hopefully it will be up and we'll okay. be able to link to it and everything will be great. The other is, and uh, this plays right in when we were talking about contrary tracks mm -hmm. and lasers and feelings, I have this game called Dueling Fops of Vindemir. <laughs> and it is, it is not a very sincere game. It is very sarcastic and funny. The idea I came up with, again, this is an, an entirely different way to deal with the what if players do something unexpected and how does the GM deal with that is I'm like, what if there was no GM and what if your behaviors were very constrained? And so Dueling Fops has a very strict structure. Uh, you know, it always starts with the midwinter ball where these dissolute, louche, foppish sword fighters show up and every one of them falls in love with somebody. And, you know, the middle section is always this cotillion where things escalate. And the end of the year is always the all-valley fencing championship where one of these sword fighters or someone in their orbit is going to become the, the champion. But in between that, so, you know, you've got the first scene, which is set, and then you get two random scenes, which are things like, you know, it could be somebody's debut into society, a grog house brawl, erotic machinations. Then you get the cotillion, then two more random scenes, and then the championship. And the characters navigating this, you have two stats, dueling and foppish. And each has a derived contrary stat, which is serious, is the contrary to foppish, and noble 
is the contrary to dualist. And the way things go, anything you do is gonna, you're gonna roll a D10 plus two of these, try to beat a 15. And the, as they slide about, if you max out any of them, so if you hit dualist 10, which is noble zero, or if you hit foppish 10, your character is no longer in play. Hmm. So you're trying to stay in the confusing middle. And you also have this little stable, every, every swords person has two beloveds. And if you lose both your beloveds, either because they get killed or because they leave you for someone else and, and go onto their character sheet, then you are you become so sad that you can't do anything and you just go off onto the moors and brood. <laughs> so there are it's it's meant to be a very replayable one session RPG, which is like ultraviolent Bridgerton or sexy Cobra Kai. That's a chain of words that you strung together. It's it's the best description I've found. And like a lot of these games where it's a replayable one session, invariably either fans or the author come up with other kind of templates that you can put on top of it once you've figured out that core system. So it sounds like this is fundamentally an RPG or party game or something like that, a single session yeah. game. And that's a is, single session RPG. Okay. And that is also uh, going to be kickstoted or, uh, or somehow uh, put this out. This one's on... coming through Kickstarter. It's okay. uh, through Crankshaft Constellation. Okay. Uh, I wrote it and... Uh, did a lot of the work on it, but the gang is getting involved. And is that further out? That's further out. Okay, cool. That's We're probably going to do that in July. Okay, and I look forward to announcing but that. But yeah, if you're interested in games where things slide back and forth, this is actually the second Vindemir game I wrote. The first one was Drunk Cops of Vindemir, which, but I'm like, I, I wrote it in like 2019-ish, and then I'm like, everything happened. I'm like, I can't release this. This would be an excruciatingly bad taste. That's, this is going to go on the shelf until things make more sense. Yeah. In April of 2001, Mage the Ascension put out a supplement talking about how awesome the, uh, the Taliban was. Huh. Oops. <laughs> that, was um, a... <laughs> that happened. Um, whoopsie. Yeah. That kind of winds down my formal question, except for if you want to opine on whether or not Lucifer is the unconquered son. I don't know if you have an opinion in that in that rabid no, fan no, speculation. I never game. followed Exalted that closely. I uh, I got the the first book and I'm like, wow, this is great, and I immediately want to play this character, but also this character. But I never got to play it, and I I didn't buy the big expensive hardbacks that came after that. Though mm. I heard they were all really pretty amazing. Craig, thank you so much. Are there any other projects or any other places where um, you are heavily active in the world of both writing and RPGs? Uh, wow. Is there anyone that's doing good work that you think if people are like, hey, if you like the the kind of things I'm talking about, maybe look into these things? Well, Iron Circus Comics is doing some interesting stuff. They're a, another crowdfunding-oriented business. When I was talking about you know an expensive book with a glow-in-the-dark cover, that was their anthology, You Died, which is comics about death that aren't necessarily morbid or downbeat. It's like, you know, let's let's look at this thing that's going to happen to everyone without it getting weird. 
That is something I recommend. Found I got the two Scarfolk books. Are you familiar with Scarfolk? Yes. I don't know what I think of it yet. I don't want to quite call it dystopian, but I guess it is. It is kind of like a. It is a town that is constantly reliving the British 1970s in this weird mix of Orwellian and almost post. Orwellian township also mixed with some sort of weird M. Night Shyamalan. This is our community-ness to it. I like when it is not self-aware and over time it has become a little bit more parody. But yeah. Um, it's, it, it reminds me of Welcome to Night Vale, but it's like a meaner Welcome to Night Vale. <laughs> the mean British Welcome to Night Vale. Yeah. Yes. The mean British Welcome to Night Vale in the 70s. Yes. Man, seven, 70s weren't great in America, but it sounds like in Great Britain. Holy cow. Wow. And so, if we're interested in knowing what you're up to, where can we do that? I'm on Twitter and I'm just, you know, blah, blah, blahing there all the time. And, you know, gregstolsey.com, which I really should update pretty soon. And if you're wondering whether or not you should follow Greg on Twitter, the two most recent ones that I were fond of was one of a copy bar giving another copy bar a massage, which was pretty great. And also Greg saying, every year I look a little more like a stock photo warning about the tragedy of homeless men with Alzheimer's, and I just have to make peace with that. <laughs> yep, that, that's today. Yeah, <laughs> at Greg Stolze on Twitter. That will also be in our there show notes. Greg, thank you so much for your time. All right, well, thanks for having me on. This was a treat. Oh, gladly. Talk to you later. I realize in retrospect that this episode didn't have a huge number of plot options that we proffer, and while I think it was fun overall, I just wanted to include a few ideas I had. One thought is that the invisible clergy is transported to the High Umbra. Umbra lords start out as mortals or mages and rise to the top of their respective hierarchy within a spire, and new lords can be created by destroying the idea of a prior member of that clergy. This does an interesting thing in that it caps the total number of Umbral Lords at 333, or really any number of your choosing, and makes the interplay between mages and the High Umbra pretty vicious. Uh, another thought is the thing that makes the World of Darkness different is that it has a different clergy than ours. Maybe our reality has no magical or supernatural members, and there's a plan of some sort to essentially slay the werewolf, the vampire, the mage in an attempt to make reality safer, but at the cost of removing magic. Others advocate simply replacing clergy members with better examples. So maybe the vampire is replaced with the immortal, the werewolf is replaced with the berserker, and the mages is replaced with the oracle. Finally, obsession as a paradigm in M20 can be translated in a few ways. Uh, one is to kind of do this awkward construal of might makes right and allow obsession to say, my will is more powerful than reality, thus it will bow down to me. I feel there's a hole in the mage lineup of the whole by my will be done practitioners and beliefs. I guess you could jam it into divine order and earthly chaos and a few others, but it's a stretch and I don't really feel like it's a great fit, but it's easy to make your own. In the show notes, I've included links to Unknown Armies, Greg's work in Demon and Hunter, his current Kickstarter, and his Twitter in the show notes. If you do back the Indiegogo uh, for Greg's latest novel, I'd love if you included a comment that said, hey, I heard about it on Mage the Podcast. It makes it a lot easier for us to get guests. Our next episode is Transmissions from the Rogue Cabal, and after that, it'll likely be 
underexplored places in the Umbra or my take on the Marauders. Uh, the latter would likely be a one mic show, which would just be me talking with a script. So we'll see how that goes. And with that, this has been Mage the Podcast, who is really not looking forward to low-rise jeans making a comeback because we just don't have the hips and waistline for it. The executive producers that sponsor our pants-buying spree are John H., John Magnuson, Jenna F., Josh H., Chris Sack, William M., Neil Patterson, Christopher P., Buck Farmer, Anders S., Brendan, Dan Svensson, Jay Sunsern, Andrew E., William C., Isabel Castillo, Josh Golden, Mike Creedle, Freddie, Richard Bat Brewster, Bryce Perry, Andy, and Michael Parker. I did a cleanup based on the most recent list. If you are a supporter and your name was not listed, my apologies. Please tell me. Discord uh, is probably the best way to do that. Or drop us a line, magethepodcast at gmail.com. Our executive producer shout-out this week is to Michael Creedle, who I know nothing about. So here are some anagrams of their name. Chemical Elder, Recalled Chime, Medical Lecher, Acelled Chimer, Acrid Leech Elm, Child Care Meal, Acid Her Mill, Mecca Held Dyer, Circa Mead Hell, Aced Relic Helm, Leached Lice Mister, Decal Cheer Mill, Maced Cell Hire, Acrid Cream Hell, and my personal favorite, Emerald Cliche, which is basically an exalt name. If you would like to become an executive producer like Michael and get a chat color in Discord in your name and have me make up something about you periodically, you can become one by clicking on Become a Supporter in the show notes or through the episode entries on our webpage. If you super liked this episode or super didn't, drop us a line at magethepodcast at gmail.com or at magethepodcast on Twitter. We have a hop in Discord community at discord.me slash magethepodcast. You can subscribe to our show on Spotify, Anchor, TuneIn, iTunes, Google Play Podcasts, or the podcatcher of your choice. If you like us, please give us a review on the platform you're choosing or tell a friend about us. I think I may start reading reviews because some of them are very nice. Others are mean and poorly spelled. Both of those I think are fun. Also go to matesthepodcast.com for show notes and all of our previous shows. Now go change reality. Bye.